You are listening to Pastor Dennis Helton of Grace Community Church in Jefferson City, Missouri. Please join us as we study the scriptures one verse at a time, finding therein the power of God and the wisdom which leads to salvation. And without further ado, here's Pastor Dennis Helton. Good morning. It has been a pleasure to uh, worship with you guys so far, and now we get to the meat of things called uh, reading and the study of God's Word, right? The proclaiming of it. Hey, we're all familiar with that phrase, you can't judge a book by its cover. And this certainly applies to the Christian. The human container that we are, we are human containers. And it really doesn't reflect the treasure of the glorious gospel that resides in us, that we contain. So it's like a precious pearl that's hidden in an oyster. You know, the oysters, have you looked at them? They're not that pretty, are they? But inside that is that precious pearl. So we have within us the most precious, eternal, glorious truth of the gospel, the truth that leads to salvation. And just by looking at us, nobody really would ever know but that the power of God resides in us resides in each individual who's a believer in Christ, resides in the whole body of Christ. Isn't that incredible, that thought? So we've been in the midst, I think, of a tremendous passage, just exciting as we've been in chapter 3 of Corinthians and then moved right into chapter 4, which is continuing with that great depth of the excellency of the new covenant and how it far exceeds the old covenant and the mosaic law right and so that was the end of chapter three it's surpassed by the glory of the very new covenant and we know that the veil has been removed the veil has been removed to those who are in that new covenant and that great the blinders have been taken off what a privilege that we have as great as it is it has surpassed the glory of the old covenant surpassed it, moved on, and has transformed us into the very image of Christ from glory to glory, right? Second Corinthians 3.18. Jesus Christ is the very image of God. And we're being changed into the image of Christ, who is God. Quite a thought. What a ministry we all have inherited. Not only Apostle Paul, the other apostles, and then the ministers, and then all throughout church history, all the believers, they have this treasury, a ministry. So we have a question this morning, our, our, our major question that we're asking. If this ministry is so glorious, which it has made very clear to us, why are its ministers, its servants, so weak and contemptible according to the world? Why is that? This is a glorious ministry, isn't it? And yet, we're seen as weak, contemptible in the world's eyes. We are weak. The theme is that kind of thought. This is the question that we're going to try to answer today. Actually, it is answered. 
I will try not to get in the way of it too much and make us stumble on it because it's very simple, but I think there are profound truths here. The gospel minister is a weak vessel made of common, run-of-the-mill, everyday kind of clay, uh, fragile, easily broken. That's what we are. But God has entrusted the most supreme, glorious gospel of the eternal truth of Jesus Christ, that good news, and he's entrusted that and put it in these pots of clay. Amazing that he would do that. The valuable truth of the gospel is put in these clay pots. And, and we say, why does God do this? Well, according to Paul, our answer is found in 7b, the last phrase. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. That is the reason why he puts such a treasure in clay pots. That there would be no mistake about the origin of the gospel and the power that it does in the minister's hand. We say minister, servants, all of us. Okay, let's go and stand up. Go to chapter 4. Verse 7, we have one verse today. Surely I can get it in on time. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Let's pray. All glory to you, Lord. Not us. Not to us is the glory. Or anything resembling that. We take no credit. All glory is to you. So that your power would be seen. And not in ourselves. Help us get out of the way as you work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. We, got, we have two parts here today. 7a and 7b one is the striking contrast the other deals with the power of God and it starts off with but we the word but there definitely does more than suggest a contrast it is a contrast we have come right out of verse 6 that's where we left off last week for God who said light to shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We've been on that for the last several weeks, haven't we? I had no hurry to get out of there, and I still don't. <laughs> we're, we're there in a great spot. He's talking about an immense, incalculable glory. Glory of Christ, a new covenant the light and knowledge of the glory of Christ who is in the very shining of God. I think it's a superlative, supernatural description here of the new covenant revelation. It's Christ's majestic revelation of who God is. God reveals himself through the person of Christ 
And God is revealed in this incarnate Christ who came here to earth. God came to earth. The message of the new covenant has good news, doesn't it? And we can be saved out of our sins. The gospel, God came in the person of Christ to save us from our sins and dying on the cross and resurrecting. His glory shines through Christ. Shines today. And the clay pot carries this precious, good, valuable news. Unbelievable. We proclaim it. It's a priceless treasure, isn't it? It's the best thing you've ever heard. It's the best thing you know. So we contrast that best thing to something that is of humble ways. A clay pot. We carry this good news. All true believers carry this gospel truth. Now, you have to think about this. Go back, think about the introduction of this letter, and then we've seen it all the way through here. False teachers. And they pour contempt, wrath on Paul. They hate him. They describe his bodily appearance as weak. His speech is of no account. He's been very humiliated by them. So he wants to make sure the truth is set forth. He doesn't care so much about his own reputation as he does who God is and his reputation. And so he has to defend what he's teaching and that he is son from God. So he is described very weakly and very humble means throughout 2 Corinthians because he uses some of the terms that they use and he says, okay. He flips it on them. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. We see some definitely humble aspects. They charged him with this. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I who am meek when face to face. Are you catching the idea? They called him weak. And whenever he would be with them in person, he would be a chicken. Yeah. I mean, not bold. But bold towards you when absent. He could write things and just rip at them, right? So they were saying how weak he was. Weak in his speech. Go to chapter 11. Verse 6. But even if I am unskilled in speech, I have to think that Paul knew how to speak. <laughs> Very much trained as he was. But he, you know, they said that he was unskillful in his speech. Very contemptible speech. It's of no account. He says, even if I am. Yet I'm not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we have made this evident to you in all things. So there he's defending himself. He says, okay, even if I'm not the greatest speaker. Here's the truth on this. Chapter 12, verse 7. Now, he was humble. And God uses those people to humble him even more. Paul is a guy who needed to be humble. He can say, yeah, I sure did. Look where he came from. And then all we have to do is take
take that finger to Paul and point it right back to us. Boy, do we need to be humbled, right? Every day. Because of the surpassing greatness. You see that quite a bit in Scripture, don't you? Especially today. Of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself, exclamation point. He says that twice, doesn't he? There was a reason. Whatever that messenger of Satan was, there was a reason. And he tells it to keep from being prideful. By the way, he had just gone up to the third heaven seen unexplicable things. He could not describe them. That's not there. They said it was so much. It, it was so heavenly. These earthly minds cannot understand what's in heaven. But if you be in heaven, you'd be kind of prideful. You won't believe what I saw. Paul could have written books on it. <laughs> could have made national TV appearances about it. Made movies. Do you see that he had to be humbled? And he was. And so in our Corinthians 4, the contrast is there. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. See, Paul has the right idea. He comes right off of verse 6 saying this. You're coming from the very loftiest thoughts, the highest thoughts you can have, the very glory of God. In verse 6 and then in verse 7, he says, but we have these earthen vessels. After peering into the goodness and the divine glory, isn't it striking, this contrast? In verse 6 to verse 7, he says, I'm frail, I am unworthy, I'm a vessel, I'm a clay pot, I'm a jar of clay. Chapter 10, 2 Corinthians, Paul learned humility all throughout his ministry. Matter of fact, when uh, God saved him, that moment of that shining light that was so bright, bright as the noonday sun or brighter than that, fell off his horse and went in the dirt. This is the great learned scholar, Saul. See how he was humble? Just right off the very bat, he was blinded. Now it says in verse 12, For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. It's false teachers. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Don't you like Paul? Yeah. Verse 13, but we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. Verse 17, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. I think the arrogance had been beaten out of Paul. So now we go back to our Corinthians passage, chapter 4. Pick on 
couple of few uh, couple of few words here that are key in just this one verse. We have this treasure, the Sara, the Saras. Thesaurus in the English. You know what it is. You've heard of it. We're familiar with dictionaries. It's kind of related to dictionaries. It's a storehouse of words. It's a storehouse. It's a receptacle for words. In this sense, in the Greek, it meant to, to, to have a storehouse, uh, a receptacle for valuables, to hold them, to store them. It's a treasure. Treasure. This, this treasure we have in our souls. Hey guys. No problem. Glad to have you. This treasure is clothed with bodies. The treasure of the universe, the glorious gospel, is clothed by our bodies. He uses these bodies. These bodies are not made of iron. They're not made of stone. They're not made of gold or silver. Bodies are made of what? Dirt. <laughs> they can be impressed upon by violence. They're made of earth. They're earthen pots. So when he says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, this treasure is in this. The pots can be broken in pieces. And he puts the gospel this treasure, the word of God, the glory of the very God about Christ and his glory is put in these bodies, these earthen pots that can be broken in pieces that will eventually die. We'll get into that earthen vessels. He is saying what, can, what is put into these bodies is remember verse 4 and remember verse 6. Chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. The light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then turn it around. It says the same thing at the end of verse 6. When it's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the treasure. But we have this treasure, this treasure that has just been spoken of in verse 4 and 6. We have this treasure in these. Let's look at treasure just for uh, another moment or two. We have this treasure. The word is thesaurus, right? Which means a storehouse. Storehouse of valuables. We're talking about this treasure is valuable. Matthew 6.19 Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. There Jesus is talking about what true wealth is. This is a Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 6. What words of wisdom, Jesus says, as they were storing up for themselves. Treasures, the Sarah. Go to chapter 13. It's the parable chapter. So we go from the Sermon on the Mount to the parables, the rich teaching of Christ, right? Matthew 13, 
verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's talking about if you saw a treasure, you would want that, wouldn't you? And there's, this is made up for sale. I'm buying it. I know the treasure is there. It's so precious. You're willing to give everything you have for this. That's compared to salvation, isn't it? There's nothing better. The gospel truth. You're willing to give up your lives for this gospel truth. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Hidden in the field. And we'll get to that in, in just a, a few moments about hidden in the field. We're still focusing on treasure, right? Go to Colossians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 3. Colossians 2, 3. I think this really sums it up about the treasure. Speaking about the knowledge of God's mystery in verse 2. That is Christ himself. You ready? In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The treasure. Everybody's looking for a treasure. Have you seen some of the Discovery Channel shows and everything? Everybody's out after the gold. Or they're after certain things in, in like in the sea, up in Alaska, such, right? Certain kind of fish, you know, there's treasure. And we're talking about eternal treasure, and it's hidden in whom? Well, it's Christ. You say, hey, I thought we had it. We have Christ living where? In us. We have the treasure, folks. Is that phenomenal? And now he gets to the part that seems so strange. The God of the universe, who has the treasure, it's all hidden in Christ. Why would he take that treasure and put it in clay pots? Greek words are ostrakonos, sclusum. It means baked clay, earthen vessels. Baked clay, earthen, taken out of the earth. You make those kind of pots out of the earth. It's dirt, common pots of clay. Uh, it's referred to as common instruments, common utensils, tools. That's what they are. The word vessel there, skewers. A utensil, an instrument, some kind of household furniture that's, that's used. In this case we're looking at it, it can be identified as a hollow vessel for containing things made out of clay. Clay comes from the earth. So we are feeble. We are frail. We have bodies that are going to perish. By the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he's going to be getting to that. Though our outer man is decaying, that's what's happening right now. As far as our physical lives, our outer, outer man is decaying every day. But our inner man is being renewed day by day. The outer man. Matter of fact, we're formed out of the dust. And because there was sin, we will go back to dust, these bodies. We return to it. The infirmities that we have, we have sicknesses. We're liable to be broken in pieces daily. 
You ever felt broken? <laughs> if you're a Christian, you certainly have to say yes. Everybody's broken. Or we are broken actors on a broken stage. And he takes the treasure and he lodges it in these clay pots into my soul, into my mind. He is of value, isn't he? This treasure is of high dignity. But rather, it seems to be disgraced, doesn't it? The treasure does. Seems to be injured where it is deposited. Such an impure vessel that I am. He's given me this treasure. He's given you this treasure. We're not pure vessels yet, are we? Decaying, dying, fragile, liable to be broken. Accidents can happen. Unworthy to hold this treasure. That's what Paul's getting at. When he said in verse 4 and 6 how glorious it is, and he says we have this treasure in this. Let's get to a little more explanation on this. There, there can be some ideas on this thought of what these earthen vessels were at that time. So we'll go back in time and kind of pick that up. That's how you interpret it. When you look in scripture, you not only go to the language and past verses, that's the best way to interpret scripture, interpret scripture and the language that it was written in and and then what was the culture at the time it's called hermeneutics it's just a way to interpret scripture helps you learn more about what God's word is about in Matthew 13 44 I, I said to kind of hold on to that thought we'll get back to it I actually did get back to it we go there now kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found Hit again, from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is about salvation. It's not about the person that is a treasure, although you will hear that in Christian circles today. God saw how valuable that he was, that he just picked us up and made us be the kingdom of heaven. No, not with Reformed theology. It always glorifies God. Puts man in his position. Man sees that, and he's willing to give it all up. What's happening here? Well, in the practice of Eastern kings and other people, they'd store up the treasure of gold, silver. They'd fill jars of earthenware, jars of clay, with coins, with bullion, gold, silver, diamonds. Herodotus says of the king of Persia, I'll read this, the great king stores away the tribute which he receives after his, this fashion. He melts it down, and while it's in a liquid state, runs it into the earthen vessels, which are afterward removed, leaving the metal in a solid mass. It's put in these jars of clay in a liquid form, gold, silver, and then, of course, it comes back to a solid state. Occasionally, clay pots were used as vaults as where you could put valuable jewelry and gold and silver 
they'd put in, be put into clay pots, buried in the ground. Now, when Jesus says this, that a guy is out there and he's looking at this field and he's thinking about buying this property, he sees the treasure in it, he is going to get it. Whatever he has, he's going to give to get this. He has, it's buried in the ground. Maybe it kind of come up a little bit. Who knows, maybe he had a little shovel with him. That looks kind of funny there, you know. Okay. Starts digging in there and guess what he finds? <coughs> or, there, or there's a man plowing in the field. Maybe he worked for this guy. <laughs> he uncovered this priceless treasure that had been put into a clay pot. Plow might have broken that pot, exposed to him what that treasure was. Shovel. So the, there were there were vaults that were used mm -hmm. to protect these that uh, these valuables. Clay pots were kind of like vaults. Plutarch describes a historian at the celebration of a Macedonian victory in 167 BC that 3,000 men followed wagons carrying silver coins in 750 clay pots. We're looking back in history now. This just validifies how important these clay pots were. They would put tremendous valuables in something that was of not much value in itself. So they were used for containers for valuable things. That's the idea. No particular value of themselves. Another thing that they would be for would be valuable documents. Turn to Jeremiah 32, 14. We're looking at treasure and then earthen vessels, right? Jeremiah, first of the prophet section. I'm telling myself that actually it's not. It's it's at the near the first part. There's Isaiah and there's Jeremiah. Um, Thirty-two fourteen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, an earthenware vessel, a clay pot, a jar of clay. Put this contract, this important document, put it in there that they may last a long, a long time. Getting the ideas? Valuable documents. It's title deeds. It's manuscripts. They have to be stored away somehow. Do you know the story about the Dead Sea Scrolls? 100 years ago or so. Incredible find. Almost in our time. Dead Sea Scrolls are scriptures that were written right there that people could see. Well, when were they found? Like I say, over 100 years ago. They, uh, they were stored in the caves of Qumran. There were the people called the Essenes, community of Jewish people that lived down near the, the Dead Sea area, east of Jerusalem, in the desert. They preserved scripture. 
as some stories go. And so they, they wrote this. There was a little boy who lived around the area. He's out having a fun, fun uh, on a particular day. I would say, hey, it's, it's a Saturday, but that's a Sabbath. And he wouldn't be doing it. So I guess it would be Sunday. Whatever the day off was. <laughs> a little shepherd boy, he's playing around there and he's throwing rocks around, you know. Who knows what kind of neat rocks he found there, Penny. Right? He threw one in an area and all of a sudden he heard, dink, heard something break. It's like a window breaking. There's a clay pot. And it's what we know today that led to many other findings of clay pots. These are the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are scripture that validify the Bible. God doesn't need it to be validified, but to people, it, it's like saying, hey, we found another missing piece. Architecture and you know things that are found from ancient days. When you look at archaeology, well, this little boy did that. It was priceless. What a priceless value. It's, it's found today. It's housed in a beautiful museum in the city of Jerusalem. This museum is built to repli replicate the very design of a clay pot. And on the roof, on the top of this museum, it's like a lid on those clay pots. And you can go in there and buy these little replicas, they're miniatures, clay pots. They were used for valuable things, these clay pots are. Now, let's get to the real meaning. That is showing that how, how valuables were kept and clay pots were very instrumental in keeping things safe, as weak as they were. Now, the most important thing is it means common things of life, clay pots, frequently. Um, I have buckets in my garage. All sorts of stuff goes in these buckets when I go outside. You'd never guess what turns up in your yard. <laughs> you just had it mowed and kind of cleaned a little bit. The next day, of course, I think of the neighbor's dog. <laughs> Get little souvenirs. Leaves, tree branches, grass that's been cut. All sorts of stuff. Just put it in that bucket and then pop it in the truck. That bucket is, hey, it's very helpful and, and it's useful, but you know, as far as looking at that bucket, it's not really pretty. Matter of fact, if you go back to the times that they lived, I don't want to get too gross here, and if you don't want to get grossed out, maybe you need to step out for the next minute. They had no sewage systems at least for the most part in most places. They was used buckets for waste, human waste, garbage. It's the same kind of thing that is said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you look at that. Now we're getting to the bottom of things here. That's what Paul is really trying to impress upon us. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 20. 
Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels placed, placed in the right areas of the house, beautiful things, but there are also vessels of wood and of earthenware. Some are to honor. What do you think the honorable ones were? The silver and the gold. They're there to be made to look at. And some are to dishonor. What do you think that would be? The wood and the, the earthenware. The clay pots. The buckets. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. He takes a plain old bucket and he says, if you cleanse yourself, of course, he's the one that sanctifies and cleanses us, but we are also called to, make, to be made holy, to be holy, sanctified, a vessel that now can be used for honor despite the way that it looks. The idea of an earthenware uh, wooden container was to dishonorable, dishonorable purposes. The idea of the earthen pot in the mind of Paul here is just what he was using in 2 Timothy 2.20. It was used in the most common ways. Maybe sometimes distasteful, uh, disgusting. Common containers were humble. They were for dirty uses, dirty jobs. Not fit for noble purposes. Not by any means. There were other things that were used for honorable, noble duties. But these were common humble pots for the dirty purpose of life. And he says this, you Christians, me, Paul says, you're clay pots. We're clay pots. Do you think they know what that means? <coughs> After we talk about the glory of God, do you get the idea here? We're clay pots that have the treasure of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at the value that's there. The services that we perform is something of value. If these clay pots didn't perform that service in and of themselves, do you, were they valuable? You'd use the silver and the gold or something better looking, at least the fake gold, you know. But if these don't serve their purpose, there's no value. No intrinsic work and worth in these clay pots. You say, hey, I can set up a souvenir shop and sell these things. <laughs> Who wants them? They were expendable. They were easily replaceable. Everybody made them. Your clay pot, mine's better than yours anyway. I can do that. And that's how Paul views himself here. I hope this has gotten very graphic in our thoughts now. Rather than being musicians like jars of clay. <laughs> when we say that, it sounds a little more glorious, doesn't it? I think they knew what that meant when they said that. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. 
You'd say, Dennis, man, you're really taking us really low here. It's what God likes to do. Why is that? Well, our answer is at the end of verse 7. We're not there yet. 1 Corinthians 1, 20. We, we go back to this so often. But if we're talking to the Corinthians, we have to go back to here. This is where Paul first came to them. He'd come out of Athens, come from the major city of philosophy. People in Corinth knew about that. They had their own philosophers. It's a wicked place, though. Where is the wise man? Okay, they're all wise. Where is the wise man? Show me. Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And we say, what? Yes! We can see it so clearly, can't we? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Through its own wisdom, it can't know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, stone the To Jew, Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what it is. We hold that in our vessels. Because the foolishness of God, and he put that in quotes, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, that's what the world says about Christianity. It's foolishness. It is stupid. It's weak. Then he says this. He rolls into this classic passage. And we all love this. Because every one of us can identify with this. Consider your calling, brethren. Consider the calling that God gave you. That there were not many wise according to the flesh that were called. Not many mighty that were called. Not many noble that were called. We don't see too many kings, presidents, and on and on that are really the called of Jesus Christ. Do you know very many? Probably name them on one hand, maybe. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the despised ones the things that are not and nobodies so that he may nullify the things that are they think they are so that no man may boast before God. That's why he does what he does. I used to go around saying, there'd be certain local musicians here that were rather very charismatic in their presence on stage, the way that they talk with the crowd, their musicianship, I mean, their writing and their songs. They were just tremendous. They just grasped the crowd. The crowd was going more and more, you know I mean? They were all they were followed by people. And I used to think, man, if that guy could become a Christian, you know, he'd be up there with his alcohol and all the other things that go with it and his curse words. But imagine if God could change him. We've all said it. But you know what? And it would be good. It'd be it'd be great. We pray for those guys, right? 
But that's not usually the way God does that. He goes for the people that are not known. He goes for the people that don't have a lot. We're blessed here, very much blessed. But just saying, it's amazing what who he goes after. And that's the thought here in our Corinthians passage in chapter 1. If you look in 2 Corinthians 4.16, he says, Therefore do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. We're all decaying. I don't care what your age is. You're decaying. You're here and you're going to die. Except if Christ comes back while you're still living. And then we'll be changed instantly. I have that hope. That, I think that'd be kind of cool. It doesn't matter. But I think it'd be a really good thing. Right now it would be okay. Wouldn't that be great? Just all go up together. You know? Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That is what is happening to us right now. So he says, don't look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, spiritual things. For the things which are seen are temporal. We live by faith and not by sight. People want to see things, experience things. So live by faith. But the things which are not seen are eternal. What's he doing to us? Making us like Christ. Our bodies are decaying. I'm glad this body will not go into the eternal state. It can't. It's impossible. 1 Corinthians 15 says so without the treasure, the pot really has absolutely no value. You know that? But with the treasure, look at the value now that has been put on. It's his design to take weak, decaying, and crumbling instruments and turn them into glorious objects that he's made for his purpose. It's amazing, isn't it? This man Paul and you and me, we proclaim such an indescribably powerful and beautiful message and we're nothing more than fragile jars of clay. Are you amazed by that? God does things that are just like seems like it's always the opposite to the way the world would do it. Jacob, not Esau. Isaac, not Ishmael. He, do, he does those things all the way through Scripture. Now that's part one. Let's go to part two. And this is the design behind this just incredible contrast. We've been looking at the contrast, haven't we? God, His Word, His glory, me, a pot of clay. And the answer to all this is why does He do it? And this is where you get the high view of God, folks. Always look for the high view of God. You may not get the answer to what is going on with you, what has gone, what will go on. You know what? It's all in God's hand. And as long as we keep dying to self, here is what this is all about. 
so that the surpassing greatness of the power, dunamis, dynamite, will be of God and not from ourselves. Self-esteem is just shot out the door, blown away by his dynamite. Self-esteem is one of the biggest lies in the lifetimes that we've lived when they keep, they keep pressing it. It's called Christ-esteem. You guys like that one? Esteem Christ. Find ourselves in Christ. I don't want to be out there in my own because I have no intrinsic value. So what esteem do I have? But I look then who I am in Christ and I see I'm being transformed in the same image of Jesus Christ who is the very image of God from glory to glory. And I, that is the right view, isn't it? Now, the word here for surpassing greatness. Take note of this word. You have it in your outlines. You have it up there on the third line. It looks like hyperbole. And in the English it is. To the Greek, you can pronounce it as hyper, hyperbole. I think of bale and I think of ball. I think that's how I remember this. Bale means to throw. Hyper means above, beyond. It means to throw beyond. Yeah, to go beyond the record, right? To go beyond it. Excellency, preeminence is the word that used to be used in the English for this. Hyperbole, or in this sense, it's probably the best translation. They're surpassing greatness. It goes beyond any kind of great wing thing. This is how God demonstrates his greatness. He takes little people like us and he uses us to take the most precious treasure in all the universe. I can't, I can't understand that. That's because it's surpassing. And it's about his greatness. It's about him. So now we have to go to a story to finish this off. It's found in Judges chapter 7, verse 16 and 20. Actually, I'll tell you the story. We'll read verse 16 and then I'll come back and explain a little bit. Um, this is God. Um, Gideon. You've heard of Gideon. And he gets this message. Arise for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the 300 men. It's dropped all the way down to 300 men. Into three companies. And he put trumpets and empty pitchers, earthenware vessels, pots of clay, into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets, all around the camp and say or shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred, hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just posted the watch and they blew the trumpets, smashed the pitchers, the earthen <laughs> pitchers, that were in their hands 
And when the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. That's how they're going to defeat the enemy. <laughs> oh, God's ways are not our ways. Gideon's torches are carried in earthenware vessels, pots of clay. God is the only totally just, righteous, holy, good being in this universe that we live. And for to him to suggest that he ought to be modest in the power. He could come up with missiles at that time and blow those guys out of the, the land. He cannot sin. He's a supreme being. He's the only merciful, the only gracious person. And for him not to want to show his power would be sin. Do you know that? A lot of people cannot understand why God would keep talking about, you give me glory. And they will say, that just doesn't sound right. You know, God shouldn't want that. He should, you know, maybe get us right there near his glory and say, you have glory too. And I don't have a whole lot, just to some. No, he says it's surpassing greatness and power. If he were to say anything else, he'd be lying. It would be less. He can say that because it's a truth. He's the only wise being, isn't he? He must say that or else he doesn't glorify himself. He would be sinning. So now what must he do? He has to demonstrate his greatness. So we're going to illustrate what we just talked about as we get ready to close this out. The knowledge of truth lies in God. He's going to use Gideon. The enemy Midianites have 130,000 opposing 32,000 of the Jews. 32,000, okay, that's like population Jeff City, close to that. Four to one. For every one Jew, there were four enemies. Oh, we need some extra power, don't we? Gideon's thinking that all of them are there. What we need are some missiles. How can they win a war like this? The Lord said, Gideon, your thinking is just, it's human thinking. You're a, you're a pot of clay. You got too many soldiers. Get your army together and say, all we want are the ones who really want to fight and all the ones who don't go home. They started with 32,000. Well, 22,000 of his 32,000 left. <laughs> and now the odds are 13 to 1. 4 to 1, 13 to 1. We better go back home. Gideon, the Lord said, still too many. We have way too many. We're going to propose a little test. You have the guys go on the other side of the river of the enemy there, Midianites. And if they go down on the knee and just kind of um, don't really pay attention to the enemy and get their water that way, we're going to eliminate them. But if they're there and they're still keeping an eye as they take in their drink of water, then we'll keep them. And we had how many? Thousands and now, you know what? Gideon's just astonished by this. Uh, what? How, how can we do this? 
9,700, 9,700 of the 10,000 now were eliminated. We now have 300. God says that's more like it. Now we're going to win the war. The odds are 450 to 1. 450 soldiers versus each one of them. So you cannot say, Gideon, when you win the victory, it was won by superior firepower. You have a trumpet. God says it. You have a trumpet. You have trumpets. Get a trumpet. Get some torches. Get some clay pots. In fact, I think that's where Paul might have thought about right here. He had a trumpet. They had these vessels. In the nighttime, at the proper time, they blew the horns, broke the vessels. The lights were there. Midianites looked out on the hills. They think it's a giant, huge army, and they're surrounded by an army that's much bigger than what they had, and they started killing themselves. They were slaughtered by 300 men as they killed themselves. Who won? It was God who won. God won the victory. Do you think they came back into the camp and said, boy, we really are quite an army, aren't we? We slaughtered all those Midianites. Isn't that cool? We are an army. Did you know that Israel in our times, think of the 67, 73 wars, the enemy, the Syrians and all the Arabs outnumbered the Israelites something like 30 to 1, Jews. 30 to 1, something like this, isn't it? You know who won? The Jews are still there. God has done that. Matter of fact, they were very intelligently smart. Even their generals, some of them had patches over their eyes. 67. And our guys started saying, maybe we ought to have our generals wear patches over their eyes. <laughs> you see, when God works, he doesn't really need any weapons. Just needs a shout. Didn't even really need that. But he used that. Which is not conventional to win a war. Break a vessel. The surprise of the exceeding greatness of the power of God will be seen. That word, like I say, is dunamis, power. Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, he's really a great God. That's what he's saying. And if he can use a jar of clay like us and still convert people, and we're living witnesses standing and sitting here today about his greatness, the most powerful expression of divine treasure by using such frail people, God makes it clear that it's his power and his power alone, not our power. He could have picked the greatest scholars who were in Egypt studying at the greatest library that was in Alexandria. Augustine, 300, 400 years later, came along. He didn't go to the most ex, ex, uh, exquisite philosophers of Athens. He could have gone there. The seat of philosophy existed there. The thinkers were there. He didn't go to Rome, where you had the greatest orators there, and pick them. He didn't even go to Jerusalem to get his people. Those were the religious geniuses of the time. They spent their whole life poring over the Old Testament, the law. He didn't go to those places. Where did he go? Went to the shore of Galilee, picked up some fishermen, 
Hayseeds from Osage City. Oh. A bunch of fishermen. I don't make light of them. I'm saying this is who he uses. Nobody's. Because there's really nobody. The other guys think they're somebody. God, absolutely. I think he delights in this kind of thing. Wouldn't it be cool to take something that's so profound? Nobody would ever guess it. He chose clay plots, pots to preach his great salvation. So we talked New Testament times. There was Herodotus and he was a historian. He passed by him. He passed by Socrates, the philosopher. He passed by Hippocrates, the father of medicine. He passed by Plato, the philosopher, Aristotle. He passed by Euclid, the mathematician, Archimedes, the father of mechanics. He passed Arpicus, the astronomer. We think of Cicero, the orator, the Virgil, the poet. All those guys existed at that time. We think of the New Testament times. And who did he choose? He chose a little hunchback Jew with a deformed face who had all sorts of eye problems. And without great oratorical skills, he put in that, that little clay pot priceless treasure. He's still doing it today. So the power of the gospel is a, not a product of human genius, not oratorical ability, technique. The power is all from God. You have that power. You can take it anywhere to anybody. You can live it. You can teach it. We were breakable, disposable, dishonorable pots, good for nothing. And he's taken this priceless treasure, put it in us, and he makes it advantageous to him because it gets us out of the way in our pride and our arrogance about who we are and just shifts us out of the way and the gospel then sticks out. Let the power of God work. You don't have to force it. Let his truth do its work. The principles I have here it's at the end. It's, it, it's on your bulletin. We have to close now with the Word of God, and then we will have our song and our communion. Communion, clay pots putting together, giving glory to God. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you for this Word and this truth. You are awesome indeed. Oh, the power that you have is so exceeding we cannot comprehend it. But we know it's powerful enough to take people like us who were dead in our sins and now desire to know you and your glory. Thank you for using us. It is certainly not our thought that that would be the way it's supposed to be done. You are so great. And we say, Amen.